You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. We've been in a series entitled Sinners and Saints, in which we've really walked through the book of Romans at, at what seems to be kind of a snail pace. And we arrived today really at sort of the beginning of the end. And, and what I mean by that is that in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, we've, we've really seen sort of two major thematic uh, points, and, and we're moving into the third and final one. And so um, with that said, chapters one through five, just so that we, so that we know, I'm going to give us two sentences for, for each of those two points. The, the first one being chapters one through five are, are all about what God accomplishes for us in the gospel, meaning our righteousness and our, and our justification before God are all secured and satisfied by Jesus for us as a free gift. The, um, the, the second portion, really chapters 6 through 11, are all about what God is accomplishing in us through the gospel, which is our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our ability to live a life that is actually um, pleasing to God, a life that um, follows in the way in which we were called and created to, to walk from the beginning. And so um, those, are the, those are the two sort of sweeping themes uh, of those first two sections. And, and today we move into um, a portion of text that begins with this word, brothers, I appeal to you, therefore. And um, more often than not, we tend to to look at that word therefore and say like obviously he's he's saying all of this in light of something that preceded this and and so the question is what and and that therefore that Paul is using um applies to the entirety of chapters 1 through 11 and so he's saying in light of all of these things we're now going to kind of make this this really really big shift in view of this now this and this is the the final major shift in Romans in which Paul moves from what I like to call the indicative into um, the imperative which is just a fancy way of saying this he spent 11 chapters telling us here's what's true and and these next few are here's what you do this is what it looks like to live in light of this truth. And this is something that I really love about Paul's writing because he puts the horse and the cart in the right order. And so uh, he's already told us that we were without Christ, that we were hopeless and helpless. He's told us who we are in Christ if we've, if we've called upon his name for salvation, that we're righteous, that we're justified, that we've been given free grace as a gift, um, and that it doesn't come to us by works, that there's not something that we can earn. So for those of us that would be tempted in the following weeks to sort of cry legalism, um, we have to remember that everything that Paul is instructing us to do in the following chapters is not abandoning chapters 1 through 11. It's not even a separate thought. It's a continuous thought, and it finds its true and utter foundation in the grace of God's glorious gospel written to us in the first 11 chapters. And so with that said, this morning's sermon is titled The Body of Christ, and there's, there's really three things I'd like for us to get at. Now, um, for those of you that are here now, you picked a good one to come to because I went really long in the first one, so, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to course correct uh, for this one. So um, with that said, three points. Number one, a logical response if you're taking notes. Number two, a transforming word. Um, and three, a humble people, and we'll, uh, we'll work through these real quickly. Um, the first point is going to come from verse 1. And verse 1 in chapter 12 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is 
your spiritual worship. Now, we've already addressed the fact that this is a major transition. We're moving from uh, more of a a doctrinal exposition into an application. This is what it looks like for you. He's addressed our theology, and he's proposed a standard of truth, and now he's going to work out the implications of that truth. Um, uh, A a crude example of that would essentially be uh, like this. Maybe in school you learned um, that there's this thing called gravity. And you were, you were told that that was true, and you were told that that's probably something you should order your life around, meaning you're not going to step off the closest skyscraper you can find expecting that gravity won't work. Because gravity happens. It's true. It's there. It's present. It's something that we observe, right? And it has an effect on the way we live and that we don't do stupid things like that. In the same way, we've, we, we see other sort of opportunities where we are told truth and we opt not to live in light of it. We choose to to respond maybe irrationally or illogically. Maybe your parents told you that the stove was hot and that it would hurt if you touch it, but you just had to try it, right? We we lived not in light of what we were told, but we, we went sort of in the complete opposite direction. So with that said, um, there, there's a practical conclusion that, that Paul wants us to reach here. Um, and I want to appeal a little bit to the sense of logic. because uh, and, and some of you may ask why. Because uh, a lot of times in the Word of God, we see that uh, the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, right? So, so we should expect, to some degree, that people look at what we, what we believe and say, that's a little weird. Like, the, the Bible self-acknowledges that. It says, like, the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. But this is one of those great opportunities where, um, although, although much of the time we're, we're confronted with, uh, with, with the story of the Bible that calls us to live in faith, not necessarily hoping in what we see, but hoping in what is unseen, right? But this is a moment where um, we get to sort of take this idea uh, of logic and really appeal to um, how this this idea of living, of following Jesus in such a way that is pleasing to him, that is a, a sacrifice to him, um, actually makes sense. Why that's a logical, rational decision in light of, in light of the good news. So, we're just going to break down this first verse because there's, there's a lot of truth packed into it. And so the, the first little portion of the phrase there, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, some of us may get confused at, confused at this point. If you've, if you've been around for the past however many weeks we've been walking through Romans, um, you know that Paul has gone to great pains. He's gone to great pains to say, you know what? You are no longer under the old law. So the sacrificial system, all of those things are, 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 no longer, are no longer a burden upon you because Christ has fulfilled them for you. And yet the first thing he does when he says, therefore, is he takes us, he takes us back to it. He's hearkening to this Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament are just all of the books written before Jesus came. And in them, um, there was essentially a way for you to make atonement, make payment for your sin. And that was by uh, essentially bringing, usually typically an animal, uh, it could have been other things too, um, to, to sacrifice the Lord. You, you would kill it and typically you would burn it on, on an altar of some sort. Um, and so this was, uh, this was sort of a, a natural rhythm for uh, the Old Testament uh, Jew or Israelite. So there's a, a couple things that we, we need to sort of take note of. Number one, we have to understand that, that Paul is asking us to give our very lives as, as a sacrifice, right? Present ourselves to God. 
as a living sacrifice. Now, um, that should be good news to us for a couple of reasons. Um, n- number one, like I said, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were killed. Um, and so he's saying, I, I want you to present yourself um, as a living sacrifice. Now, he says, he uses this word bodies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So there's, there's a temptation here if you, if you sort of read it apart from the context to look at it and think there's something weird happening there. Um, and and it's, it's really not. We tend to think of worship as sort of a spiritual thing. This whole, uh, even belief, it's, it's just a spiritual thing that kind of takes place either maybe within our thoughts um, or just the way we contemplate life. But, but what Paul is writing about here is, is that we should be giving or we should be willing to give in light of the gospel of, of chapters 1 through 11. In light of that, we should be willing to give ourselves, our whole selves, all that we are, soul, body, and mind to Jesus as a living sacrifice. Simply put, God wants us to give ourselves to him. See, in, in the preceding chapters of Romans, we read that Christ, in the ultimate sense, gave himself. Right, not his self. So, so what Paul's talking about here, he's he's not just saying, you know, do something strange with your body um, for for God. It, it, it's not that. Um, we see this ultimately mirrored in Christ, that that Christ gave us Himself. And what I mean by that is that um, in coming to us, we we learned about Him, we got to know Him, we see Him. Um, he's revealed Himself, and then He's given Himself bodily, physically as well, right? In that he not only came and dwelt among us, but that he went to a cross for us. Christ, Christ gave everything for us. He gave us himself. And he ultimately gave us himself so that we might give ourselves to him. He gave himself to redeem us. We give ourselves to thank and to serve. We often look at this idea of sacrifice as, as the giving away of something that's extremely valuable, right? So when we hear that word, that's sort of immediately where our mind goes, which is, okay, God wants me to present my body as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice meaning I, I'm going to lose something. But, but what I would hate for us to do, brothers and sisters, is to miss really the point of what it is that, that Paul is saying here. See, many of us stumble over that word, but the primary point here is not about us losing something in order to follow Christ. The, the point here, the primary point, is, is about expressing something. That, that in our presenting ourselves to God, we express something about God, something about how he's good or, or right or gracious or just or merciful or kind. And we see this perfectly, perfectly imaged in what Christ did for us. This idea of sacrifice, not being primarily about losing something, but being primarily about expressing something, right? So here's the thing. If you, if you believe uh, the Bible, if you believe it to be the word of God, then you, you, see this, um, you see this instance in Philippians 2 that's really, really beautiful. And it talks about how Jesus, although he was equal with God, that he did not consider that something to be grasped onto. So in essence, he, he sacrificed that. And it, and it tells us that he came and dwelt among us, that he, he took upon himself sort of all of the awkwardness that is this human body, that is humanity, that is in a relationship with humans, that he took upon himself that, that he sacrificed equality with God, praise and adoration in heaven in order to come and be with us. 
so the question then becomes, did Jesus do that primarily because he just wanted to lose something? Or did he do that primarily in order to express something? Because the Bible goes on later to tell us in 1 John that by this, we know love. That Christ died, that he gave himself up for us. You see, Christ didn't sacrifice just for the, the sake of sacrificing. It wasn't just, well, I really feel like I should do this. But it was that he loved us and he wanted to express his love to us. And so in the same way, when Paul talks here about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, what he's not saying is you should just sort of um, very somberly and solemnly give up things that you think you should have. But what he's saying is that by every decision you take with all of yourself, all of your body, heart, soul, and mind, you should be striving to express the goodness of God that was revealed to us in Romans 1 through 11. That if he's truly given us all things, the only appropriate response is to give him all that we have. So here's the thing. Paul Paul says, in light of the glorious good news of the gospel, we should offer ourselves, our whole selves, to God as a living sacrifice, not simply to lose something, but to express something. And then he says that this sacrifice should be holy and acceptable, right? Holy and acceptable. And this is where it gets tricky. See, in the, in the Old Testament, when we, when we go back to that and we think about the sacrificial system, you didn't get to bring your, your sick and dying animal. You didn't get to bring the animal that you were planning on eating for dinner. You had, you had to bring your best, right? So it was, it, it was like, let's look around. Let's find sort of the, the, the most perfect, the least flawed sacrifice that we can bring. And we're going to put that before God. In the same way, Paul is saying that we should present the very best of ourselves to God in a way that is acceptable to him. Now, remember, hold on to the truth of the gospel, because what I'm not saying is that you have to work to earn your salvation. What I'm saying is that we work from a salvation that has been given to us, that because we have been made free, because we have been set free from the law and from sin and from death, we get to joyfully respond by providing to God what it is that God ultimately requires or asks of us. This means that we come to him according to what he deems holy and in a manner that he deems acceptable. So so what I mean by that is is essentially this. If, let's just say it's true, and some of us may still be doubting um, whether or not the Bible is true and all that stuff, and that's totally fine. This is a, a place for you to be able to to work through those questions. But let's just say that that was true. Let's just say that this is the the best news that, that you've ever heard, that you were hopeless and helpless, that you were doomed, and that you've been given life, life abundant, free of cost, free of charge, and that it was actually purchased for you, not not just with money, but with, with the blood of Christ. If if that's true, how, how silly of it is it of us then to sort of arrive at the conclusion that we can say, yes, I will take that wonderful gift, and then I'm, I'm going to continue to live my life however I want to live it. 
So, yes, this is true, and this is good, and this is virtuous, but that doesn't mean I have to believe or, or act as if it is such. It's silly, and that's why um, Paul goes on to say, which is your spiritual worship, or this is your spiritual worship. There are other translations that read reasonable worship, and really the most, um, probably most appropriate translation is the word logical. So this is your, this is your logical worship. And so the question then becomes, what could, be more, what could be more logical or reasonable than offering all that we have to God in thanks, praise, worship, and adoration? Essentially what Paul is saying here is that what he is asking them to do isn't crazy. So when, when, when Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, he's saying, do that, and what I'm asking of you makes sense. It's not crazy. It's not crazy to want to pursue what it is that God has called us to be. It's not crazy to seek to follow after him, even though you've been given free grace. And even though right now, if you were to fall dead, God would count you justified in Jesus. He says it's not crazy. In fact, it's entirely logical. If we understand the gospel truly, then it's apathy and indifference that are, that are illogical or irrational. Do you see how this is true? If, if the gospel really is that God, infinite in holiness, became feeble humanity in Jesus to pay our debt and set us free to live in his glorious presence, then this offering of ourselves is the only logical response, the only rational response, the only reasonable and appropriate spiritual response to God's grace is to give him all that we have and all that we are because it's all been given by him. The second point, a transforming word. This point follows closely on the heels of our first point in that in order to offer ourselves as a holy and acceptable sacrifice, we must be transformed, right? Romans has gone to great pains to tell us that we can't bring anything to the table, that inherently we have nothing to offer. In fact, Romans 3 went so far as to say that we were completely and utterly worthless. And so what is it that Paul, what is it that Paul's trying to say, right? There's, we've got to toe this line well between the message that we've been given, which is the truth, the word of God about who Jesus is, and the manner in which he's called us to live, a morality, a standard of living, Right? Remember this, God accomplished our righteousness and justification for us in the gospel. That's the first, the first four books, five books of Romans, or first, uh, sorry, chapters. And he will accomplish our sanctification and glorification in us through the gospel. That's the promise of Romans chapter 8. That's how we can know that all things work together for our good, not our financial good, not our, our sort of career good, or, or even our relationship good, but for our good in that we will we will be delivered into the hands of a holy God, holy and blameless. And so you can read this sanctification, this tr- uh, really, and transformation synonymously in this context. But what we have to ask ourselves is, how does this transformation come about? How do we change? How do we, how do we become this, this blameless, acceptable sacrifice? How do we move towards that? Paul writes in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's, there's two things that Paul asks us to do in order to be conformed or says that we need to do in order to be transformed, in order to be made different. The first and easiest thing we must do to present ourselves as, as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice is to not be conformed to this world. Now, before we go any further, we have to understand that some people have taken this verse and used it to do some pretty silly stuff. But I think there's a middle ground in that it's faithful to the text. You see, most things of this world were created by God for us to enjoy appropriately as good stewards. But we should be willing in any instance to be seen as foolish because we cherish and follow something that the world considers foolish. Now, so what I mean by that is that God has created all things and that when he created all things, they were created good. And that even when things went bad, God came and redeemed us. That's, that's what the gospel is. And so we are now free to, to live in such a way that, that, that glorifies him. But in the moment that, that these things of the world would, would take a higher seat in our lives, in the moment that these things would cause us to compromise, what Paul is saying is that we're not to be conformed. And here's the thing. Uh, like I said earlier, the, the wisdom of God is, is foolishness to man. And so I, I find it funny. Um, well, maybe not funny. Maybe it's sort of tragic in a way. But... Um, I find it interesting that, that, that we as Christians sort of, we speak this truth to people, and, and, and I get it. It's become real to us. It defines the way we live, hopefully. But then we tell it to someone, and we expect them not to laugh, right? When really, like, if you think about sort of just the details in a logical way as to what we believe, when you think about it, it's kind of crazy, the wisdom of God, it's, it's foolishness to man. And so we should be ready and willing, really, at, at, at any point to be ridiculed for that sake. But here's the thing. None of us want that, right? We haven't wanted that since we were pimpled junior high students, but it's shocking that there seems to be really no discernible difference, if you, if you look at polls, between the professed follower of Jesus and the unbeliever when it comes to divorce, abortion, or sexual immorality. Right? All, of, all of these things that Christians are, are typically pretty, pretty quick to, to sort of cry out against. And yet, in the privacy of their own home, when they're filling out a survey, they say, eh, whatever. And we tend to, to, to kind of bleed in with, with our culture in these areas. Now, so I'm not trying to make a political statement. They're just examples. But so in this sense... I'm talking broad scale in the church today. In this sense, we are still that pimpled junior high student that wants to win the world's approval rather than standing firm in the approval that we've already been given in Christ. Now, let me say this. There are things in our culture that are worthy of esteem, that are worthy of affirmation. So what this is not, all right, what this is not is not a call to, to sort of wholesale, pack your bags, move to a cave, and chant all day. All right? But it is a call to stand firm where we should stand firm. 
The gospel of grace gives us strength and humility to do so. Here's the thing. We've said this all throughout this series, and I'm going to keep saying it again and again and again until we get it through our heads. Always remember, our message comes before our morality. Our morality is going to fail, but our message won't. All too often, our message is tainted by our vitriolic, hateful, prideful shaming of those who don't meet or follow our moral standards that we believe is from the Word of God. But I think it's interesting that when we look at the life of Jesus, morality didn't get in the way of him engaging sinners. In fact, he was loved by prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. So it wasn't his morality that got in the way. It wasn't his morality even that sent him to the cross, condemned. It was his message. It was his message. And so here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to be ridiculed or, or not conformed simply based on um, I'm anti this or I'm pro that. But like Paul will go on to say in, in, in other books that he's written in the New Testament, I would consider it a joy and an honor to be ridiculed on account of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. So we live in this world, we enjoy and we steward the things of this world appropriately, but we are willing at any moment to lay any and all things down for the sake of the gospel, for the name and fame of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, do not be conformed to this world. Don't look for approval when you've already gained it from the only place that it matters. Paul goes on to say this. So the first thing that he says, in order to be transformed, do not be conformed. And the second thing he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so rather than being conformed, we should seek to be transformed. The question is how, and he says, by the renewal of your mind. Now, um, this probably sounds weird or strange. What does it look like to, to renew your mind? It's really simple, guys. The beginning of the Christian life, if you've, if you've called on the name of Jesus, the beginning of the Christian life of that journey is rooted in this idea, the idea of, of repentance, which means a change of mind, right? So, so prior to our initial repentance, we thought according to the ways of the world, right? But when the Spirit awakened us to our need for a Savior, we rushed to the cross and our minds and, and the directions of our lives were changed, right? Like, like there, there should, you may not have like a moment where like God burst through the clouds and shouted your name and said, follow me. But there should be at least a moment or a time period in your life in which you recognize that, look, I used to think a whole lot differently until the, until the truth of God's word settled on my heart. Now I'm, I make decisions in a little bit of a different way. I've, I've decided to enjoy some things more than others. I've decided to put away some things and take on some things. It's simply a change of mind, but according to what? Right? Re- renewal of mind, changing your mind. According to what? 
the entire book of Romans and, and, and really the entire Bible was given so that we might be renewed in our minds. We say that every week, right? We say um, that we go to the scriptures because we believe that in the scriptures, the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. The Bible was given to us so that we might be renewed according to it. You see, the, the, the word is, is not simply just words on a page. Because John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the Word that we are called to renew our minds according to, according to the work of Jesus, according to what is good, perfect, and pleasing in what He has revealed to us, which is comprehensively and totally wrapped up in what He has given us in His Word. It was given to us so that we might begin to think as Jesus thinks, so that we might begin to approve what Jesus approves, that we might challenge what Jesus also lovingly challenged. You hear that adjective beforehand? Lovingly challenged. So here's the thing. If you're, if you're sort of new uh, to, to the church experience and you want to know why is it that people get together and sing when they can't sing, <laughs> preach when they're not very good in front of people, um, gather together in in someone's home and eat and pray together. This is why. We're striving to be renewed in our minds so that we might be transformed by the grace of God. It's as simple as that. This is why we preach, why we sing, why we do communion, why we do baptism, and why we have neighborhood parishes. They constantly and consistently call us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We sing to remind ourselves and to teach ourselves of God's grace. We preach to proclaim and believe in God's truth. We gather to equip and encourage to live for what God values. All of this is according to God's word, manifest in the gospel of Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. That's what we do, and that's why we do it. Paul goes on to say this um, in, in sort of the latter half of the verse. He says, Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I can't tell you how many times in almost a decade of, of, of ministry that I've had this simple question asked to me time and time again. How can I know what God's will for my life is? What Paul is saying here is that it's not hidden. There's not some secret map with a lot of different tricks and tips that you have to go through to hopefully arrive at this destination. But that by the renewal of our minds, we will be able to discern what is good, what is perfect, what is the pleasing will of God. See, here's this. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. That you would grow in grace. That you, along with the believers, would grow up into maturity, into into true manhood, true womanhood. That you would reflect the glory you were originally created to reflect. That's the will of God. So it's not so much a question of whether or not you should be a baker or a lawyer, or whether you should marry Susie or Sarah, or whether you should live in Houston or New York, although I could make a case for Houston. It's about you being sanctified where you are, growing in maturity and grace, 
Brothers and sisters, if we as a church family together commit to the renewal of our minds by the grace of God, we will be able to discern God's perfect, good, and acceptable will. See, Romans has told us time and time again, we're imperfect. We, we can't discern those things because we're not like God. A lot of us, maybe before we were, we were Christians, probably thought that way. Not in the sense that you sit there and think, I'm God. But in the sense that you operate as though your wants and desires are the only driving factor. So if you don't want to do something, you don't do it. It's as simple as that. But here's the thing. If, if, if and when we operate that way, which it's not even if, when we operate that way, it's quite obvious from thousands of years of evidence that that works out pretty terribly. And yet God has called us to the same standard, the same pleasing and perfect will, the same thing that we were created for in the beginning, which is to live in steady state relationship with him, to reflect his glory, to be a people both to whom and through whom he reveals himself. This is God's perfect, good, and acceptable will for you, that you might grow in grace among the people of God. That's it. And that's why church is really important to us. That's why it should be. That's why there shouldn't be any such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. And that's why we try to create an environment here where you can come and be known. Because that's what God has called us to. And so we arrive at the final point, a humble people. All of this plays itself out. Everything that we've just talked about, this idea of living, uh, being a living sacrifice, presenting your, yourself to God as such, holy, acceptable, and blameless. This idea of being transformed by the renewal of your mind, finding the courage to not be conformed to the world. All of that happens in the Christian community. You see, we sacrifice ourselves for God first, but we also give ourselves to one another. And Paul is going to um, explain that a little bit for us in the following verses. Verse 3 says this, For by, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. So that's to everyone among you. So if you're, if you're a Christian in the room, this is to you. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So here's the thing, uh, and I'm going to try to wrap this up quick. We could do a whole other sermon on just this part of the text, but we're not going to. In the gospel, we are free to make a sober assessment of ourselves because we've already been told that we're prone to wander. We've already been told that we're hopeless and helpless, but that we've been given hope and help in Jesus. So here's the thing. I don't know about you, and I'm just going to confess here for a minute. But my inner dialogue, I, it, hopefully you guys have that too. If not, I'm just really weird. But my inner dialogue most of the day is trying to find ways in which I can tell myself that I'm good enough, that I'm doing just fine, that, that this is good, that I'm achieving here. I'm, I'm, it's constantly sort of a, a trying to make myself feel better trying to make myself worthy, trying to sort of justify my existence to pump myself up. Like if I, if I get this many followers on Twitter, then I'll, I don't know, that, that was a lame example because I don't even really tweet, but um, 
trying to find ways in which to sort of boost my ego. And really, a lot of, a, a lot of our culture is like this. Right? We're kind of in that day and age where, where everyone gets a trophy. Everyone needs to just kind of feel good about themselves. You've got to try to dig. I don't know about you, but for me, I have to kind of like dig for reasons, you know? But in the gospel, we have freedom from that. We have freedom from that striving of sort of always having to be like, I've got to find reasons for why I'm, I'm, I'm acceptable, why I'm good. Because our entire faith is predicated on the fact that we couldn't meet the standard and Jesus did. So this gives us freedom to be honest with ourselves about who we are and where we still fall short. Because we know that where we fall short, there is grace, grace abundant. More than enough to cover that cost. More than enough to cover that disparity. It also gives us freedom and the humility to recognize that everything we have has been given to us in the measure that it was meant to be given to us by God. Right? So that's what he says. He says, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So that means that even if we are doing really well, maybe we are sort of head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd. Even in that moment, we get to look at the gospel and say, you know what? It counts for nothing. Because here's the thing. Paul talks about his salvation experience quite a bit, in, obviously, in his writing. Um, but if you know Paul, Paul uh, goes on to sort of give a resume of sorts in Philippians. I think it's the book of Philippians. Um, and he, he essentially says this, look, I had everything. It's like, according to sort of the the morality, the laws of the day, I was perfect, righteous, blameless. He had an insane education, years and years and years of of education. So he was well-respected in his culture. He held a profession in his culture that was very highly esteemed. He said, "I I had everything. Paul wanted for nothing. And he says, but I consider those things rubbish, garbage, compared to knowing Christ. So in the same way, we ought to think of ourselves soberly. We can take, we can look at ourselves, we can laugh at ourselves and say, yeah, that was kind of messed up. But God is transforming me by the renewal of my mind, by grace, through faith, according to the gospel of Jesus. This is how the body ultimately ends up working in harmony. And, and, and so here's the thing, right? Um, a lot of us, whether we're Christian or not Christian, have probably had some negative experiences among Christians, right? I, if I'm the only one, then cool. But, um, but most of us have had, a, a, maybe even beyond ne- negative, maybe horrific. And ultimately, those things happen when we start to think that we're just a little bit better than that person, when we start to take account of ourselves and think, what am I doing here with these people? And Paul's going to go on to explain why that's foolish. He says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So there's There's two things that we've got to get real quick from this text. Number one, we are like a body. 
And, and so here's what happens when you cut the finger, if you were to cut your finger off. That's no longer part of your body. It's not a body of its own. It's just a finger that's been removed from, from, from the body. And the body operates without it. We, we are called, obviously, to know and to glorify God and to be in relationship with Him. But it is equally as obvious that we are called to be in loving, gracious relationship with one another. We're, we're connected. Just like it would hurt if you cut your finger off, it hurts when we are outside, when we are removed from the community of God. Because we were created, we were renewed, restored, redeemed to be in it. And so it's not so much about attendance. It's not so much about being at certain activities or giving a certain amount of money. It's about living among the people of God, knowing that in them and through their gifts, you may be, you may be a finger. That means you still need an eye to see what you're going to touch or pick up. You still need an ear to hear if you need to slap someone. Right? You need, you need all of that. You're connected. You cannot be sort of this lone ranger Christian. Now, the, uh, the second thing that we need to take away from that is that we're different. We're different. You don't even have a fingerprint on your body that's the same as any other fingerprint on your body or anyone else's. We're all different. And so to come to church on Sunday and expect to see people just like you and want to leave when they're not is silly. We want to be a diverse group of people from every age range, um, from every socioeconomic status, every race, every, every everything. United under the truth of the gospel that says that we are heirs to the same kingdom, that we're sons and daughters of the same God, and that we share in the same inheritance, which is the glorious riches of God's grace given to us in Christ. So here's the thing. If this is, if this is your first time, I'm going to challenge you to stick around. If you're a Christian, make this your family. It, 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 doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't matter how hip or how cool we are or how young or how old we are or anything like that. We don't belong according to affinity. We belong according to identity, which is in Christ. So with that said, I, uh, and I'm going to, like I said, I need to wrap this up here. So there's, there's just three concluding thoughts, and they're all only one sentence, so it'll be okay. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, great, three more. <laughs> first, first sort of final parting shot. If the gospel is true, then apathy and indifference are irrational and illogical responses. Plain and simple. The, the second one. The gospel is not a passive or dormant pathogen that leaves no trace of its existence. It's active with symptoms that include a transformed life according to the word of God, among the people of God, and for the glory of God. And then the third and final thing, this sacrificial living, this transformation necessitates, takes place in and among the body of Christ. You cannot escape it. Let's pray.